Happy Father's Day, dads. Love you guys. Thank you for what you do. We are, before we dive in though, I want to quickly kind of take a, a minute um, con- connecting with dads and also with uh, the VBS, uh, this children up here that you guys got to see. It welds into this idea of this children's room. I want to talk about this for one second. If, if you've ever done ministry at the church, and what I mean by that is if you've ever served in a ministry on Sunday morning, maybe you've tried coffee out, children's ministry, youth ministry, some kind of info booth or something, and, or you've heard a request like this before from Stephanie, and she's come on her knees with knee pads begging you, please, please help, help, help. And you're like, I'd love to, but I've got kids. And so Maybe you've wound up having to split up like one parent's headed off to with the kids home or to serve while you're at service or you're swapping. All this kind of craziness happens when you have kids and you try to serve. And the reason we do that is because if your kids stay for two services and they hear about Noah twice, a lot of times they're like, I've already heard this. I don't want to do this again. At least my kids do. Sometimes you're here for three services. The goal is we want to give you an opportunity to where you can actually serve and not worry about that your kids are going through tons of different services. And the way that we're going to do that is this children's room. It's an opportunity to actually for a, for a child to go to church, worship God, go to their class, be with their friends, listen to their teacher, get engaged, and then the second service to just go to a location where then they can hang out, have some fun, play some video games, talk to their friends, make some fellowship connections. And so this second room, which is for parents, for children of parents who serve in the church, is an opportunity for you guys not only to, uh, to bless those who are serving you, but to uh, enable these children, bless these children with something different. And um, the kids, uh, trust me, will love this kind of a thing. And here's what's great. If you're a dad, and that's why I'm aiming at the dads, if you're a dad and you've said, I, I can't teach kids anything, like you're like, no, talk about Noah. I don't know Noah. Though. And you're just kind of, you would freeze up. You wouldn't want to talk to kids. If you're a mom and you wouldn't really want to talk to kids and teach a lesson, but you're really good at hanging out with kids. You're really good with playing with kids. You're awesome at video games and you could school some little kids. You know, if that's kind of your, your, your area of expertise, this is your place because that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for people to teach. We're looking for people to hang out with kids, be able to check them in, hang out with them. We're looking for eight of us in the church. So I said this to first service, and they all looked at me like I was cussing at them, like the pastor cussed. We can't do that. Yes, you can. We can do this. We can find eight of us in this congregation who aren't doing anything else. If you're already ministering somewhere, don't. This is to serve you if you've got kids. This is an opportunity for you if you're looking for something to plug into, and you're like, hey, this is a great place to start watch a bunch of kids play games and hang out with them, take them out into 100 degree heat and see if they faint. You know, that's kind of stuff we're talking about. So if you're interested in that, grab one of the orange cards in the seats, pull that out, um, connect with us by saying, but putting your name down, a way to contact you and saying, hey, love to make kids faint or something in that, in that zone and we'll, we'll get a hold of you. And so second is also a connection we want to make to you guys is is through our, with our elders. Our elders have three candidates who are stepping into the position of elders. They've gone through several months of kind of talks and conversations. They've read a book. They've, they've done several different things. And Jeff Boer, Max Wan, and Ron Burleson have come to this place where we are ready to just say, we'd like to place them on the elder team. But we want to talk to you guys first. So we brought them their names forward. Now you're seeing who they are. If one of you just saw that picture, one of those photos, and went, that guy, you know, okay, we need to know that. So um, we want to hear from you guys, you know, kind of like, hey, yeah, we know these guys. We're, all, we're excited about these guys. Or we know these guys, but we've got some questions. Um, feel free to connect with them. Feel free to connect with any elder and uh, let us know. But otherwise, we're excited. They've gone through the vetting process. We really think that they are, um, they're the right 
kind of guys for what we're looking for for the elder team. We're just looking for your input. So please give us input. And yeah, thank you, Danny. That's, I agree, man. As we dive back into the book of John, let's open our hearts up in prayer and just ask God's uh, just blessing on this time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a great father to us. And we thank you for the dads we've had. And Lord, there are some in the room who may not have had a, an earthly father, but you have stepped in because you are the father of the fatherless. We praise you for that. We ask that you would teach us as we sit down and read your word, as we look to uh, your son to teach us about life and about the good life. We pray that you would lead us in this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Imagine with me that the streets of Jerusalem, which is a city, not a sizable city, but about maybe the size of half of Corona, is packed out with a million people, shoved in with every part of humanity, with their children, with their babies, with their donkeys, and all of their, or their oxen or whatever, their sacrifices. They've packed into these places. They found rooms to rent throughout the entire city. Every room is full. Every place is busy. And they've killed these lambs and they've eaten them. And they've sat around this table and they talked about the wonder of what God did when he set apart Israel and pulled them out of Egypt and saved them, walked them through the Red Sea. Children have asked the traditional questions at the meal of what is this? What are we supposed to understand? And now a week of ens- has ensued of, of partying and enjoying and conversing and family life and all of these things are happening on the streets of Jerusalem. In the midst of this, you hear the rumors that Jesus has gone to the temple and kicked everybody out and everybody's interested. Who's this Jesus guy? And some of them gather around him, find out who he is. Suddenly he's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's, you're watching as the blind see and people are freaking out. They're going, who is this? This is amazing. This must be the one we've been looking for, this, the Messiah, the anointed king from God who's going to set Israel free and bring in his kingdom. He's going to bring in the good life. He's going to bring in what we've all been waiting for. And as all of this begins to seethe and foam, people are, are, are yelling at him, you're the Messiah, you're excited. And one of these men who saw this steps into the scene. His name is Nick, Nicodemus, we can call him Nick, but Nick is older and he's coming at night, so this is Nick at night, as some people have called it, but the, uh, not my joke, sorry, the, uh, but as he comes in, this guy's powerful. He's a leader in, in the top council of Israel. He's probably wealthy because of that, owns some homes, has family, he's a Pharisee which means he obeys the word of God as best as you can, building all these other rules. And he is a man of God. He's a good man. He's viewed as like one of the best in the city, one of the good people that you would want to get to know. He's got health probably because he's doing well. He's alive. He's walking around. He's engaged with people. He's smart. He's memorized the entire Torah in order to be a Pharisee in the Sanhedrin. The first five books of the Bible locked in his brain. This guy knows his stuff. This guy's intelligent, and he has run into Jesus. He is living the life that some of us are going like, man, I'd love to have some power. Oh, man, I'd love to have some money. Man, I'd love to have some, some this would be great. I'd love to have some smarts like that. And he's coming around, and yet he's sneaking around at night. Because he's seen Jesus, he's seen what he does, and maybe some group has sent him, and it's most like there was a group of people who are curious about Jesus, and they're like, hey, Nick, you go talk to him. And so Nick shows up at night, comes over to Jesus, and he's already arranged it. He's sneaking down alleys, he's making sure he's not seen, he's lived in Jerusalem, he knows the place really well. 
So he's set up to meet Jesus in the courtyard of the place that Jesus is staying. They open it up, and the courtyard would have been the square area where the animals would have been out during the day, but it's quiet enough. And you can imagine the stars above and the moon is, has lit. The, and, and we end up in this chapter three of the book of John in the scene that we're looking at. So let's go there and look at the conversation that suddenly ensues between this powerful man and the guy in the Sanhedrin page 887. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from under your seats and jump in there. Otherwise, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, is where we're going to go. And this is how it reads. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, so ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Thanks, Nick. That's awesome. I appreciate how you've just complimented me and you trust me like that. No. He says, look at me. Truly, I tell you, hey, I'm going to tell you the truth. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nick, hint, hint. What an odd conversation. This man with power, prestige, he comes and he compliments Jesus probably has this family, probably loves his life, comes and says, Jesus, we see that you got to be from God. Man, nobody does this kind of stuff. And Jesus goes, oh yeah, nice. Thanks for the faint praise. I appreciate that, but I'm not going to trust you. And last week we saw that Jesus had already had these people come and say, we think you're awesome. We think you're great. And he's just like, he didn't entrust himself to them because of something that was in man. Well, it's interesting that Nicodemus is the man that now shows up. And he says, Hey, we think you're great. He makes a statement of faith. And Jesus kind of says, you know what? That's great. I appreciate that. But you know what? You, you're looking for something. You're looking for the kingdom. You think I'm the Messiah. You think I'm the guy who's going to usher in this kingdom, this good life. Well, there's something you need to know. You have to be radically transformed if you're even going to see it. And this is interesting because this kingdom of God phrase is important for you and I to grasp before we go any further. Because if we don't grasp the kingdom of God, you're not going to understand the tension in the text. You're not going to get what's going on here because it's going to sound like, yeah, okay, yeah, God's kingdom, someplace with knights and, and, uh, and they're playing tournaments and stuff. You know, No, this isn't a medieval kingdom. This is God's rule and his reign. But I'm going to put it in modern English for us in this way. The good life is the life that many of us seek. And Nicodemus held a sense of the good life. The good life was this idea of you, that you and I can, can seek for, right? And various, we, we all have different ideas of the good life. Let's face it. Some of us, the good life is to have a good family. You, all your life, all you wanted to be was a dad or a mom. And you're like, I want to be, it didn't matter what else happened, but you want to be a dad, you want to be a mom. That was the whole eggs in the basket. That was going to be the good life. You know, I thought the good life as a little kid when I was five was being an archaeologist. You know, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. That was going to be the good life. You know, then it was an engineer, and now it's a pastor. And, and it's, it's radically changed as I've grown. I thought it was going to be in my job that I was going to have the good life. I'm going to be great at whatever I do. I'm going to write books, and it's going to be awesome. Some of you have similar aspirations, not, not to become Indiana Jones, but you have an aspiration to become something great, to have prestige. You had aspirations maybe to have finances. And so when you got some money, you start investing that money. You start pouring it out there. You start multiplying that money because you thought the good life would be where I don't have to worry about money. And if I don't have to worry about money, then I could do the things I want to do. Because really, if you got family, fun, and finances down, you're probably going to have a good life. 
And then some of us got around, you know, our 30s and realized, I've had some fun. I've got a family. There's not much fun left. So I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm working on the finances because I got to support the family. So I'm realizing something. I lack meaning. So I've got health. I need meaning. You get older, the health goes away. The meaning hopefully is there. And you're hoping I've got the good life with meaning. And then you suddenly find out that you have cancer. What good is your meaning? The good life is stolen by disease. The good life is stolen by time. And then you die and that good life is gone. You fought hard. You did your exercise. You ate right because you knew if I could just extend this life, I could have a little bit more good life. No, guys. The good life, Jesus says, isn't found in our strivings and our prestige and our power and our family. Nicodemus is the picture of the good life. He's the picture of what we think we want. And he walks up and Jesus goes, push all that aside. You think you, you know who I am. I'm going to tell you something. You want the kingdom of God. You want the good life. Well, you're going to have to find it by being radically transformed from the inside out. You got to be born from above. Your good, in other words, isn't good enough to have a truly good life. The things we bring to the table aren't going to actually provide because the kingdom of God, the good life as the Jewish people understood it, was found through a radical transformation. So whenever you read that term, the kingdom of God, or you read the term eternal life, they're talking about our concept of the good life, only it's not found in just striving and doing things, it's found in following God. You see, in the Jewish concept, you are blessed if you're wealthy. You are blessed of God. God had blessed you greatly. You are blessed if you had a big family. You are blessed of God. You are blessed if you had your health. You are blessed of God. And they would assume that you were following God faithfully if you had these things because that's how the rule, the kingdom of God works. And yet if you lost those things, then you must not be blessed of God. And so the people strived to find the kingdom of God, where God's rule led and guided them, where disease was less, where they knew that eventually they wouldn't die. Jesus comes and says, there's a kingdom of God. There's an eternal life available. And what's beautiful is that that meaning is yours because you follow Jesus. It gives you the, that, that health. It'll show you that wealth. You'll have that, you'll have that fun. You'll have that family. But it comes in the life later. It comes in the eternal life. It comes in an age after God has taken away all the sin that messes up the good life. Because when we set out to have the good family, how long did it last? About to the point you got out of the honeymoon phase or maybe the point that your kids got out of toddler phase. You know, it's, it starts to get difficult, doesn't it? No? Oh, great. Okay, um, come on. I need, a, I need a sermon. So you guys come over here and tell me how to do family stuff. Because as far as I can tell, the people I talk to, sure, honeymoon period, good. I'm a great dad. And then you just go, I'm not that good of a dad. Well, I got some help. Um, I stink. You know, that's kind of there's progression downward in some cases. Some of you, you start off in finances. You're like, this is awesome. I'm owning this. This is great. And then one day you woke up and all you have is your finances because everybody else was left behind. You launched out to have prestige and next thing you know, you have no friends because you don't know who cares about you for you and who cares about you for your power. See, the problem with the good life in this world is our sin and selfishness mess it all up. And death and disease take it all away. 
And in comes God and says, you want that life? I'll give it to you. It's called the kingdom of God. And in that life, I'll give you meaning. I'll give you these things. But they come after the sin is dealt with. They come after the disease of life is done. And in a new life, in the resurrection, where I rule completely, there will be no death again. There will be no disease any longer. There will be no pain. There will be no suffering. There will be eternal family, eternal joy. Guys, that, that sounds nice to me. This is the Bible's promise of what happens when we trust in Christ. See, our world promises you, just wait a little bit longer. Technology will get us there. Just wait a little bit longer and society will figure it out, all the problems. We'll stop all the meanness and all the garbage. Just wait a little bit longer. And you know what? The right politician, the right movement, that'll get you there. And we learned last week that won't get you there. Because the mess is internal. The mess is, is, is a destruction inside our souls that even our good things turn out messed up. Let me give you an example there. In the book of Isaiah, it's talking about the good things that we bring. Like Nicodemus brought all these good things, but here's how God views our good. He says, we've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like pollu- a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's not like what I just said. Our sins and our messes take us away. It destroys these lives and these dreams. But even our good is messed up by it. It says it's a polluted garment. If you don't know what a polluted garment is, let me give you a bit of a PG example. You know, I've had some conversations with my friends who um, are guys, and they've wound up in the wrong bathroom before. Guys, you ever done that? Like you go over to Macaroni Grill and you're leaving and you're like, oh, am I in the wrong bathroom? You know, because they've got the sign ladies on the interior of the door, the guys. Well, the way you know is most guys figure it out when they sit down in the stall and as they're sitting there, they look over and there's this little box next to the stall. And you go, that's not in a guy's bathroom. That's weird. Now, that word polluted garment, that's what goes in those little boxes. The men who don't understand what I'm saying, ask your wife or a a close female friend. But the reality is that that's our good works. Our good works in God's eyes goes in the little box in the bathroom. They're just, it's gross. It's nasty. It's polluted. That's a pretty serious thing to say about our best that we present, our righteous deeds, our good things we do. And it reminds us there's something going on inside. There's something that's broken inside that he's getting to. And last week we looked at this, that Jesus is saying, look, society is not going to fix it. I'm not even going to entrust myself to humanity because what's inside? What's inside is originally last week, this was a pure thing of, of clear water. And I just dripped a little bit of, of colored food coloring in there. And what it was, was the picture of sin entering humanity. And it spreads through the whole of humanity so that what happens is that you and I are in this warm water that is filled with sin. We have been born in sin. It's not that sin got attached to us from the outside. We wound up being sinners in our identity. Guys, we're born this way. First people that have ever said that was Christians. To say, yeah, we've got a mess in our hearts. Yes, we have desires that are weird and strong and wrong and all these things. Yes, all of us long to sin. All of us long to lie. All of us long to cheat. All of us long to get our way. All of us long to trick and maneuver. All of us are this way. We are all born in it. Our identities are formed as sinners. And we accept that about ourselves. We even try to justify that about ourselves. We are wholly and completely as a person filled with sin. 
And we explained last week, you can get the podcast to see where the philosophy and history came from that mankind wasn't born in sin. And it comes from a guy named Rousseau, but you can go back to the podcast and look at how that's affected our lives. The bottom line is the Bible is very, very clear. Humanity is born messed up. We're born twisted toward evil. And it's our responsibility to take that and understand that even our good is like dirty rags. And so when Nicodemus shows up, you can understand that Jesus doesn't say, wow, dude, you're awesome. He turns and says, no, you have to be radically remade if you're even going to see the kingdom of God, the good life. You got to be reborn. And Jesus just takes it, and he takes it deep. Take a look at this, if you will. We're going to continue. Jesus said, answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't even get a grasp of it. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? A little pushback by Nicodemus, tongue in cheek. Hey, is that what you're saying? No, no, no. Because you can actually understand the word born again. It can either mean be reborn or it can be mean born from above, being born from on high. And Jesus is saying, look, there's a dual meaning here. And he's being tongue in cheek saying, you could either be born from on high or reborn and transform. But they both come into play as he continues on. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless, verse 5, one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So he basically says, look, this rebirth, this remake has to come from above and it has to come from this transformation of self. This whole new identity has to be formed. All this junk has to be removed somehow. It has to be cleansed out. Now, as you and I can see, it's not going to happen by ourselves. I mean, there's not a you, you Every even action to clean yourself up is going to be tainted by the green. Something from outside has to act and do something. Something from above has to come in and do something. You can't actually do it from inside the tank. And that was Jesus' picture and point here. In fact, what he says is that you and I have to be changed. We have to be transformed by the water and the spirit. There's all kinds of debates about how that works out and things like that. But ultimately, if you'll look at it, it comes from the Old Testament. And, and Nicodemus should have understood this. And one of the most popular visions in the Old Testament is this one in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel has this vision of these things and then these dry bones are scattered before him and he talks to them and they all come together and them bones, them bones, them dry bones. You've heard that song. They all come together and create these people. In this case, before that is this, these verses. And God is talking about the restoration of Israel. And he says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. There's the first term. You've got to be born of water and the spirit. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your, all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And so you have water in the spirit. Water always shows the picture of cleansing. It is this picture of having your sin washed away from you. And so it's almost a picture of a bath. Here's the thing though. We're not talking about a physical problem. We're talking about a heart condition. How do you have your heart cleaned? 
And so there's a spiritual picture that is going on. Your spiritual life, this interior, needs to have a bath. It needs to have a spiritual washout of sin removed from within it. The only, and the only way we see that is through something happening from without. You can't do that by yourself. And so there's this picture of water being this cleansing, this, this cleaning out and rebirth that comes out. Now, that is also pictured in baptism. We're going to see a, baptism, a couple baptisms here at the end of the service. It's going to be exciting. But the baptism's always been a picture of a bath, of a cleansing. But it's a picture of you being transformed, of God having washed out your heart. And it's a picture of you being reborn. This picture of going into the grave and then coming out. And so people have routinely looked at what Jesus said, you have to be born of water, as saying, hey, you got to be baptized. No, you do not have to be baptized to be saved. Are we clear on that one? But baptism is the physical revelation, the picture of what has gone on in your heart. It's the picture of what goes on in the transformation of your life. And so someone who has been transformed shows that off through the act of baptism. And so Jesus is very clear. He says, You've, you've got to be born of the water. You've got to have been washed clean and of the spirit. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. Your sin has to be removed and you have to have a new life, a completely new life from God. One of the best illustrations I can give you guys is one that I had when I was in Berlin. Got to go to Berlin on a mission trip back before I'd be back in youth ministry and we sat there with some guys who were Muslims and amazingly kind and good guys. And they had toured us through their mosque there in Berlin. So we went to a Moroccan food uh, restaurant, sat down, we're enjoying the food and having some theological conversations together. And we got on the topic of sin. And as the trains are rolling by and we're talking to each other, I said, what is your concept of sin? And they said, oh, it's like this, like a window. You want to see God but this mud keeps getting splashed up because of your sin. And so we go and we pray and they went through his pillars of, of Islam. And so we do Ramadan, all these things to wash the mud off so we can see God clearly. And he said, what do you think of that? And I said, oh, we have a totally different concept. He's like, what? I said, yeah, see our concept is not that mud gets splashed on it. It's that we take razor blades and we scratch into the window everything we want until you can't see through it anymore. And this made total sense because as the trains rolled by, every window on every single train had so much graffiti scratched into the window, you can't remove it. And I looked at it and said, the only way that you're going to get rid of sin is not to wash it off. You have to have the whole pain removed and replaced. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Our hearts are stone. It takes a spiritual life, a spiritual element to come in and it has to be removed and a new one installed. He will take away the heart of stone and put into you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in there. In other words, it will beat by my desire. I'm going to give you a new life that beats after me. That's called following Christ. It's called living as Christ leads us. And so a Christian doesn't live under their own power. You're not striving to do things and make sure that you can do it by yourself. You have God dwelling in you, living in you, empowering you unto life. Because all the sin has been cleaned out and God has placed his spirit in you. And this is what he tells Nicodemus. Yes, you're good. Sure, you've got that. But you need to be radically transformed. Your good isn't good enough. The sin has to be removed. All the muck has to be done. And the spirit of God has to come to life in you. You must be born from above.
You have to be born again. Well, this blows Nicodemus away. He's kind of like, really? How, how, how does this happen? And he goes on to tell him um, in, in verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him and said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Man, talk about a rebuke. You know, you got Jesus telling, you're pastor of church and you, you can't explain this? And that's exactly what it is. Shames him. He's like, you should know this stuff. What's going on here? And then he goes, look, I get it. Okay, you need, you need some help. That's what Jesus says. He says, look, I, I say, truly, truly, I say to you, we, meaning John the Baptist and him, are speak of what we know and we bear, and bear witness about what we have seen. But you, all of your, all you guys, all your leadership, you don't receive our testimony. You're not listening to us. If I told you earthly, of earthly things, and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, right here, I believe it just kind of goes, I get it. You're a man. You say, what? Let me explain. I was in Philadelphia a, few, a year ago, and I was joining with a bunch of pastors at a cohort. And I was in Lancaster, Philadelphia. I'd never been there before. I had never driven the town before, hadn't seen anything. And this church is a giant old church in the middle of this small Amish town. And uh, we're supposed to meet up at this church. It has several venues all over the town. And so I get up in the morning and the guys have all left and I'm kind of running late. And that's not good when you're with these high power kind of leader guys and you're trying to impress everybody. So I'm late. I forget my directions. I get in the car. I start driving. I check it out on my, my iPad as best as I can to figure out where I'm going. And unfortunately, it's not helping me out because it sends me to one other location. Now I have no clue where to go. And I'm driving around. I'm like, I, I, I got to get to a Wi-Fi signal so I can at least check out the map system again and figure this out. So I'm driving all over this town and I'm being a man. I won't ask for directions. Right guys, you make, you figure it out. So I go, I'm going to, I'm so determined. I'm going to figure this out. I pull into Starbucks because I know they got Wi-Fi and I get out and I go in and I sit down. I start looking through the map thing and it's not working. And I go, up to the counter. I was like, what's your Wi-Fi password? Oh, they're like, oh, we don't have Wi-Fi here. I'm like, you're the only Starbucks on the planet that doesn't have Wi-Fi. And it was obvious God was humbling me. He's trying to teach me, listen, if you don't know where to go, you got to call somebody who knows. So I had to call them. They're like, you're 15 minutes late. I'm like, I know that. I don't know how to get there. So it was just this horrible, embarrassing thing to realize the bottom line is you and I need guides. And we can be as arrogant as we want, thinking we know how to get to the good life, that we know what the good life looks like, that we know how to get into heaven. We think we've got us down and we're going to walk through life, male or female, and we're going to try to figure it out our own way. And the bottom line is we're just getting ourselves driving in circles. We have to have somebody who's already seen the good life, lived in the good life, namely heaven, come to us to give us a guide. And that's what Jesus says. He looks at Nicodemus and says, you should know about these things, but I get it. You have never been to heaven. You've never lived there to come tell us how to get there. Jesus has, being that he is God, come in the flesh. And he says, now you need to listen to me. I'm going to guide you out. It's not about a bunch of works. It's not about a bunch of stuff. I'll tell you exactly how it is. I'll tell you the path. I'll be your guide. Follow me. I'll lead you in the vision. I'll lead you in the direction that leads you into the good life. That's what he's saying. He's setting Nicodemus up to say, listen to me, follow me, and here I will tell you how. He says, no one's ascended into heaven except you descended from heaven, the son of man. And then he hits this. He then tells him, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And if you haven't read through your Bible, that's like 
huh? If you haven't had children's ministry all your life, that's, huh? What is this? It actually comes from Numbers 21. Go to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And it's not Numbers 2, but Numbers 21. A lot of people don't read the book of Numbers because they think it's filled with a bunch of numbers. And um, what you actually discover is, while that's true, there's tons of these little stories going on. Numbers is a, is a travelogue. It's a story of how Israel goes from Mount Sinai down to Kadesh Barnea, which is this location just before they enter what was known as the promised land to go fight all these people. And they, they send in these spies and these spies go, we're not going in there. They're going to beat us up. We're not going in there. And so two of the spies go, God's got it. 10 of them say, no way. And they all leave. And God goes, we're done. I'm done. This is ridiculous. You're all wandering around for 40 years in the desert. And so the 40 years of wandering happens in the book of Numbers, and they're wandering around, and they're constantly doing this. Why are we out here? God, why are you doing this to us? Moses, you stink over and over and over again. So if you want to be annoyed by whiners, read the book of Numbers. But the reality is they're going to whine. And so we start right here. Verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? That's how you have to read this. Uh, For there is no food and no water, and we load this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Now, this is not fire serpents, like, ooh, they're on fire. Fiery means venomous. So when they bit you, it felt like fire. They are venomous serpents. They're they're not poisonous, venomous serpents, snakes. And so so he sends these venomous serpents among the people and they bite the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a venomous serpent, a fiery serpent, is set on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and live. And what God did is he set up a picture, an image, that will later resound through the time periods to this point where he's talking to Nicodemus. Humanity was bitten by these serpents. And so the sin has matriculated like venom through the whole system. It's in all of us. It's living in you. If this had been an acid, it would have been eating away this container, awaiting its time in which it would break forth because the container would be too weak. And that's what sin is doing in us, on all of us. It's disintegrating us. It's causing problems that we see all around the world in the terrorism, the racism, all the class warfare, all the things that we're reading about on the radio, and, or reading about on the radio, on the newspaper, on the internet, hearing about on the radio, watching on TV. All of this is the, the dissolving of humanity's ability to be together because of sin in our lives. Look, it's a silly thing to think one of us gets bitten and we're all bitten and one of us is walking around and there's this, there's this way to get saved. There's this way to actually be set free from the, the danger of the venom. All you have to do is look. And this guy's walking around going, hey, hey, how are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm dying. I'm, I'm, I got bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, I get that, man. Just, just breathe harder. You can do that. But, but he said to look at the pole. Oh, don't worry about it. You're not bitten that much. Don't, don't worry. No, no, keep your eyes open. Aren't you bitten too? Yeah, 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 but I'm not as bitten as you are. You know, that John over there, he's bitten. He needs to look, but not, not us. We're okay. Is that what we're supposed to do? The venom is going to get us. 
Bitten once, bitten five times, or got more venom than you do? No. I'm a worse sinner than you are? No. Sin is sin and it dissolves our souls. And the only way forward is to look at whatever provision God has given. And what Jesus says is just like that serpent was hung up, so the Son of Man will be hung up, will be lifted up on a cross. And there on the cross, Jesus hung there and he did something amazing that whoever would believe, would put their trust in him, would be saved. You see, the problem is all of this is in us. It has to be dealt with. And so Jesus shows up. And what Jesus does is he lives a perfect life. And then on the cross, the reason he can save us is because all this sin, he is willing to swallow. Now, I was going to put this in a glass jar and then smash the glass jar so you got the idea. But the point is simply this. Jesus swallows the sin. Yeah, there's stuff residual left on the glass. You and I struggle with our flesh. But unless we're willing to allow Jesus to bear and wash us clean, clean us out completely, and then set the Spirit of God within us so that we live a new life that begins to transform us completely... There's no salvation. It will destroy us. It will eat us away. And it will destroy society. And it will destroy humanity. And it will destroy ecosystems. It will destroy because sin is destructive. And the only route God gave us was to look at the one who bore it all on the cross. Drank it fully in himself. You have to be born again. There's no amount of good that can be done. It has to be poured out. It has to be taken away by the one from above. And that's what Jesus was getting at with Nicodemus. So that we would believe. So that we could simply trust the work of Jesus. As it says in John 1, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You've been made new into a new child, into a new person. A new identity has been formed. A new way of living has come about. And you go, how do I know if that's true? Because uh, maybe some of you are just going like, well, what does it matter if I just say, Jesus, I trust you. Is that all I have to do? No, you have to be transformed. You have to be made new. A little simple statement isn't going to do it. Nicodemus said, hey, you got to come from God. So how do you know if you've been changed? How do you know if you've been transformed? You know by the effects of the Spirit. Look at John 3, 8 again. In John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And this is the idea that you, can, you don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. You see the leaves rattle. You hear the sound. You feel it brush across your arms. Those are the effects of the wind. It, goes, it comes from somewhere and goes to somewhere, and even our meteorologists can't figure it out all the time. But there's evidence that's, that the wind blows. That the Spirit has done something. In fact, we see that evidence in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. John writes another book later, and he puts down a lot of these evidences. He starts with, if you know that he is righteous, speaking about God, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And what you begin to see is that these are people, when the wind blows, you will begin to live out the simple two commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. You'll have a passion for God. It won't be a simple like, yeah, God's cool. I believe in God. No, it will be a passion to follow after Jesus Christ. It will be a hunger to know God more. It will be a challenge in your life to, to find time with him and for him. It will be a change. 
The second thing that happens is sin starts to take a backseat role in your life. It stops being the most present thing. Now, at first, guys, hear me out. If you're not struggling with sin, you need to be born again. Can you hear me? Because as Jay Warner Wallace, he was an interesting guy. He was a police officer in LA. He was actually a cold case, um, cold case uh, detective, very successful cold case detective. And he cold case de- did a cold case detective work on the Bible. He wrote down his results in a book that's out called Cold Case Christianity. But his results was that he became a Christian from an atheist cold case detective to a Christian cold case detective. And he's sitting there going, this is ridiculous. At his talks, he will say, I'm the first guy to tell you I didn't want it to be true. I liked my life. I liked the things I got to do, the women I got to be with. And he goes on and he'll tell you basically, when I saw that it was true, I was changed. And now those things, sin I wrestle with. See, when you're not saved, sin's easy. You don't even think about it. You don't even know it's sin. In fact, you'll defend it because other people will tell you it's sin and you'll get mad. But when you become a Christian, when God's born in your heart and the Spirit of God lives in you, suddenly that anger that you feel, it doesn't feel normal. That bitterness is constantly nagging at you to forgive. That lust you know is wrong and it's a wrestling match that you have to fight. That impatience bothers you, that it's even there. You wish you, you could just not scream and yell at the kid or not poke at that person or that thing on the freeway or that HOA, whatever you find yourself in. It convicts you. It bugs you. It's like walking with something in your shoe suddenly because there's the living God and the residual of our sin and God's transforming you and changing you. The one, who make, the one born of God, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. His life is growing. That new life is coming out. And so it goes on, 1 John 4, 7, that we become a people of love. And I'm not talking about, I love you, not hippie love. I'm talking about hard strength Christian love that's willing to sacrifice its time and its life and other things in order to care about somebody to have be lifted up. We used to call it charity. But let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And it's a very specific kind of love. A love in which we give our lives away, give our finances away, give our, our rights away that others may know God and grow in the good life. And finally, if a simple description is this, this is actually what Jesus looks like. In Galatians, Paul writes, you want to know what the fruit of the Spirit is? You want to see what the acts of the Spirit it's going to come out as love, like I just described. It's also going to come out as joy. If you're a Christian, you're a sourpuss, you need to repent. Sourpuss Christians don't exist because the spirit is the spirit of joy. This is a good life. It's an enjoyable life. I've never met a, a person walking around going, so you having a good life? Yeah, stinks. I'm having a good life. You seem so happy. I am. I have the joy of Jesus inside. <laughs> now, this doesn't happen. The Spirit brings joy. It brings peace. You're not anxious and like, oh, I'm going to die and things are going to... No, you trust God. You've given it over. You've got this patience. You can allow things to go longer than you've ever had. These all grow in you. You have kindness. You're actually a kind person. You're not a jerk. You're good and you do goodness and you're faithful. What you say you do, you do. And And you're gentle. You have control over your emotions and you have control over your body. Against such things, there's no law. And so the challenge is simply to us 
in this. If you don't have these things growing in you, if you're not seeing these things developing in you, if you're just a statement, yeah, I believed in Jesus, you need to be born again. You need to ask God to change you from inside out. If you are sitting here this, today and you thought it was all about religion and works, no, Jesus says none of that will help you. You want the good life, the great life, the truly good life comes when you let Jesus clean you out, bear your sins on the cross, and give you a new kind of life. Here's the beauty. It is given for free by God. All paid for and done. All you have to do is receive. So Mark's going to play, if you bow your heads with me. I want you to take some time and ask God to convict you, to show you if you are in need of this transformation. And if so, I'm going to be back up to walk us through a chance to work through that. So keep your heads bowed and go right ahead and pray with the Lord.